3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Today is Tuesday, the 17th of August, and it's just hit 7am. My name is Fung, and today in the studio we've got Genevieve, Evie, and Kanagi. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Good morning. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Look, this is like a nice social event for the week. True. (laughs) Yeah. I really look forward to Brecky for that reason. It's like, oh, yeah, I get to see people's faces. Other people. It's amazing. And actually hang out and do stuff. And that is really nice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, morale's a little bit low, (laughs) but um, that's okay. Like, I've, um, it's been nice. I mean, stating the obvious, yeah, we're going into extended lockdown. There's curfew, blah, blah, blah. Very deja vu of exactly this time last year. Man, last year I didn't think we'd be in exactly the same spot. Like, I I know I can be quite cynical sometimes, but I definitely wasn't cynical enough to Mm. think that would happen. Yeah. I just remember, like, last year I was just like, we're never getting out of, like, I was just... I was at like all time like nah we're never getting to zero like this is crazy and now we're here again but that's okay <laughs> this is an optimistic show yeah I've seen a lot of really nice like people sending out a lot of uh, care and kindness so mm. that's been nice yeah 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 and there've also been some you know there have been some really cute good news stories to yeah. cling to. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> look, I'm just clinging cling on for dear life. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm like 30-something years old and have to cling on to animal stories now. So. Oh yes, tell us, Evie, you were oh, telling us before. I think my favourite thing this week has been a tiny little lamb called Wally mm. in Warrnambool. Um, he almost died in birth, but he's being like sort of fed and looked after and he is the tiniest little thing I have ever seen. Um, he was covered by ABC Life um, earlier this week and has gone viral as a result. Um, he, They had to <laughs> – sorry, I just can't stop laughing thinking about this. They had to fundraise money to give him eye tests and then he went to Specsavers <laughs> to get his eyes it's tested. the cutest thing. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen the photo of Wally getting an eye test, oh, we'll please do that this morning. We'll have to put a link to his Instagram we in have the show to. notes. Mm. Um, but, yes, I – Definitely recommend if you're not feeling too sort of, you know, happy about the current situation, definitely look at Wally's Instagram. He's got like a whole set of little sweaters now. He's very happy because all the kids in the family are at home. So he gets to just romp around the house and, you know, Mm. play with them. So Mm. swings and roundabouts with lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, this actually reminds me, even last year, there was like a sheep 
story. Remember that sheep that like had disappeared for like ten yes. years and then emerged from the oh forest my God, the really with like, matted, fluffy one. Oh yes, yeah. oh with like God. all this, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it was like everyone was like obsessed with it. I like, was absolutely at the front row of being obsessed with that sheep. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's just sheep. Yeah, are our saviors. And there's like also um, there's the, the Yarra seal mm. who's been entertaining people um, in the inner north. Um, there's a fur seal that's been come up the Yarra River um, around the Collingwood Children's Farm and he's been getting fat for the winter, um, t- sitting, chilling out, eating some fish. And, like, I think that's, like, one of those things, like, people just need to have that sort of natural life to concentrate on. Mm, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's lovely. Just, I'm just going to keep on looking at animal things for <laughs> the next few weeks. Yeah, they're blissfully unaware. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on today's show, we're, we're going to play uh, an interview that I did with uh, Dr. Uh, Jihan Kebsi, who's a lecturer in gender studies at Macquarie University. And um, a couple of months ago, she wrote an article called um, Big Brothers Watching French Academia, um, the French government has been accusing academics um, of Islamo-leftism and um, indoctrinating students to be anti, I guess, anti-white, anti, you know, French. Um, yeah, so we, we're going to talk about that as well as Islamophobia in everyday life in France. Um, and then... Closer to eight o'clock, Carnegie. We have an interview with uh, Katie's Katie's, who is a artist, an artist at the um, Queen Victoria Women's Centre, who focuses um, her work on feminism and how women take up the public space. She's doing a very interesting lockdown-related project at the moment, which mm. she will talk to us about at around eight o'clock. Awesome. And then to finish uh, up the show, we're going to play an interview that Jacob and I did for 3CR Breakfast yesterday. We spoke to Dylan from Vixen Collective about Victoria's decision to decriminalise sex work. Um, So we'll listen to that later today. Um, Weather, if anyone wants to go outside and do their... How, how, two hours? It's a bit. It's a bit rainy today. Um, I think it's up to fourteen. It's fourteen. Degrees. Yeah, ninety yeah. percent of showers. Miserable so. after this weekend. Yeah, so oh, pretty. So, yeah, exactly. Sunday yeah. was so lovely. It, it actually really lovely. felt like spring in the air. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be back with the news headlines after this. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. (laughs) 
you're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, Community Radio. Um, now, for the news headlines, just briefly, obviously, yesterday it was announced that the COVID restrictions uh, would be extended to um, September the 2nd. Um, this also uh, came with curfew. So Daniel, Premier Daniel Andrews has now uh, put in place a curfew from 9pm to 5am each day. Um, the new restrictions also um, state that playgrounds, basketball courts, skate parks and outdoor exercise equipment will be closed and people will no longer be able to remove their masks to consume alcohol outdoors, mm. which I... <laughs> it's so punitive. <laughs> yeah, I think because um, I knew it, quite a lot of venues were doing that thing where, you know, you order a drink and you'd go for a walk and like you'd sip the drink. But I think a lot of the new outbreak was linked to like a pub crawl that happened. Um, so that's why they've targeted that specifically. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm gutted the skate parks. I like went to the skate park on the weekend um, for the first time in ages and I was like, this is it, like, this is my, like, lockdown activity, mm. and now they're closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, 50% of people that I follow on social media are upset because of playgrounds and the other 50% because of skate skate park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, every parent yeah. I know is extremely upset about the playgrounds oh, thing. Be, it's you'd horrible. be so sad as a kid, yeah. like, not being able to go outside. Also, just, like, parents having to work... And look, like you know, do childcare mm. and schooling and that sort of thing. You just like it's the one bit of respite mm. to take them to the playground. Yeah, yeah. I, it's horrible. Yeah, they're gonna put that like weird crime-looking tape on everything. Which, oh yeah, just really, really eerie. Yeah, <laughs> don't like that. Um. Well, yesterday was it yesterday or the day before? Um. The age. <clears throat> published this big expose um, on the neo-Nazi movement in Australia. Yeah. Does anyone want to start us off about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a long, long read and it just gets more and more disturbing as you you go. Um, So... It's basically there was a um, an undercover journalist who infiltrated the um, far right sort of movement and got into what is known as racism HQ, mm. um, which is kind of like a base for um, a few of Australia's most right wing groups <clears throat> meeting together, um, consisting mostly mostly of white men. A um, lot of very young men, which is quite concerning, 17, 18-year-olds. Um, and, yeah, the the expose is goes into uh, the ideologies, um, the methods that they want to use. It talks about, I don't know if you guys saw a little while ago, a camping trip that um, yeah, one of the groups went on in the Grampians. Um, goes into that a little bit Um and yeah, names a lot of the men involved and kind of um, unmasks them, which I think is good, um, but very, very confronting um, yeah. for that movement to be gaining such extreme momentum in 2021. Yeah, it's something, uh, It's a lo- it's been a long-term project. It was also um, done in coordination with a 60-minute um, special that was on the weekend um, ahead of the article that was then published um, in The Age um, and is 
going to be continuing um, uh, reporting into the next week. Um, and I think one of the, the most shocking things about it is that to think um, that men who live, you know, very normal lives, it's not just all like, you know, connected to bikey gangs. A lot of the people who were involved were security guards in Crown Melbourne, IT consultants. One was a piano teacher. Um it's yeah it's sort of uh, drives home the point that you have to think about um the people that walk amongst you and the kind of views that they say that um that these can be just regular people and you have to you know when you see these kind of views you can't normalize them exactly. or normalize the people who espouse mm-hmm. them yeah it's a it's a comprehensive expose um but yeah feel free not to Feel free to stay away from that if, you know, you're trying to look after there's yourself. A, there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you do want coverage of it, um, yeah, now Parasan, which is another 3CR show, will probably be covering that in quite a bit of detail. Um, but, yeah, it, it is quite a disturbing um, expose. So just as a content warning, just to make sure that you yeah, know absolutely. that ahead of time. Um, as a small anecdote to that, actually, last year uh, in West Woodsgrave, we um there was a sort of you know on the facebook groups of like the local facebook groups we had a um woman of color put on a post saying there's been a known nazi affiliated person at the local supermarkets this is a psa for um all women to just be careful he's harassing women of color out there and he's one of the men that was named and i oh, remember wow. at the time there was a lot of resistance to defaming him quote unquote um and people were really concerned about his identity, even though he was wearing a jacket with the with Combat 18 and mm. various other, um, and, and a swastika, and had the tattoos. But um, yeah, I just thought that was that was another kind of, as you were saying, Evie, they're just normal looking people who mm. are at, at the supermarket and in our communities. And um, yeah, I, yeah, that I remember at the time, the women of color were a bit. Yeah, I, I think like um, I, this, it's funny that you mentioned like like you know, I think a lot of women of color particularly have like those kind of personal anecdotes mm. where you try to call that out and you do get sort of mm. pushed back in terms of oh but we're worried about how this might look blah blah blah. Um, I remember many years ago when there was protests in Coburg um, and how like I think. Um, someone invited me to the Facebook event to like the anti sort of like pushing back against, um, you know, the Nazis that were there. And I said, look, I'm, I don't feel safe going cause I'm very mm. visibly someone who would, they would target. And, you know, uh, like people would be like, but you know, this is, isn't this something that you feel strongly about? So, y- yes, I feel strongly about it, but also I don't want to put myself in the line of fire. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like it, it is, I think, th- I hope that situations like this, when people realise, you know, ordinary men who, seemingly ordinary men who walk amongst us, that it's, they seek to use things like defamation or resistance to calling them out in that way because that allows them to continue yeah. further. The defamation argument was particularly interesting from um, people in the community because he was proclaiming himself mm. as a Nazi. So it wasn't that people were inferring it. Yeah, you know that's mm. that's different, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, defamation doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, no. So I, I, I just, yeah, I was thinking about that in relation to this expose. Yeah. Um, in other news, uh, I'm sure everyone 
is aware of what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment. And if you've seen the footage um, that was taken at Kabul airport, um, it's quite, it's, um, I mean, I'll warn people as well, the content yeah. warning about that, because it is um, really awful. Yeah, mm. it's pretty, yeah, there's a um, pretty much, I mean, in brief, if you've been avoiding the news, then just a quick filler in uh, the Taliban, pretty much the US troops, Australian troops, UK troops, uh, have slowly been pulling out of Afghanistan since like the startish of the year. Um, and the Taliban has slowly been taking kind of city by city um, and Kabul uh, collapsed a couple of days ago, um, which is obviously the capital city of Afghanistan. Um, really concerning. I think a lot of people predicted that the Taliban would seize power, but I don't think a lot of people expected it to be this fast. And there's been a massive outcry, especially from here in Australia and I think from the US as well, for Western um, forces to, you know, get uh, people that worked with uh, Western allies and especially even the UN um, interpreters, um, people that worked with troops uh, out of the country or give them refuge, um, those seeking to flee. But um, there's kind of been a very much of a delayed effect um, to what I do believe Australia is sending in a thousand troops um, this week to get Australian citizens out of Afghanistan, but I'm not exactly sure what they're doing in terms of um, everything else. But you know, I think people are saying that you know this is a twenty. This has been going on for twenty years, like this U.S. Uh, interference in Afghanistan, and kind of has ended in the last like few days, but. Like Afghanistan's history, like right up to the 70s, has been violent and like awful. Like they've had invasions, they've had interference. Like Russia has invaded, um, America has essentially been intervening since the 70s. Um, in the 90s, like the Taliban taking control again. So this has been going on for a really long time, like all the violence and everything. And it's kind of, you know, it's really sad to see it like all accumulate to this one point. And for the US and a lot of the US's Western allies just be like, well, not my problem anymore. Mm, Even yeah. though sing literally single-handedly destroyed like any chance that that um the country had its sovereignty and like making it something of its own yeah so. it's not just the last although like our sort of direct knowledge of what's happening at the moment is you know i was a teenager when the war in afghanistan began mm. um and to see like you know decades of history cul you know culminate to this point especially having seen protests in Australia against Australia's involvement in the occupation as well. It's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's really sad. And you know, like 20 years of what, like, what did you, obviously, what, yeah, what did you achieve? Like you put him, sorry, this really makes me like yeah. really irritated. Yeah. I mean, it's so, and it's as with so many things, it's so much worse for women and yeah. young mm. children. Like, women's rights have basically been you know taken how many decades back you know mm -hmm. afghani women were doing were thriving not that long ago and now the taliban is 
making it their mission for that to not mm-hmm. be the case. Yeah. It's just one of those things like you have the, this like proxy war that like, I guess the bigger powers are fighting in Afghanistan and the people that suffer are women, children and poor people at yeah. the end of the day. Always like, Always. yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the <sighs> things that really frustrates me too is like having to see the people who supported intervention and also barring any refugees from coming to Australia now running their mouths, which mm. really, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing to see like uh, you know, people feeling horrible for what's happened and then it's another to see Kevin Rudd saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, we should um, accept refugees into Australia from Afghanistan. You certainly weren't doing that when you were prime minister. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's a really, it's a really complicated issue now because – on the one hand, you're like, okay, we could intervene again, which is not, like, feasible at all. Like, you don't want to intervene. On the other hand, yeah, we could offer refuge, which I think is, like, the most viable solution. Absolutely. Um, but, like, you've got such a volatile political situation and so many uh, countries kind of have their fingers in Afghanistan. Like, you know, there's Pakistan and Iran and Saudi Arabia, America's best friend. Um, you know, all kind of have interests in Afghanistan. Um, and it just makes the whole thing so Mm. complicated. Like I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, taking refugees is the absolute bare minimum we could be doing here. Like, and we should have been doing it anyway. And speaking of which, if you feel like you want to help, um, in even just the smallest way, you can write to your MP, um, your local MP, um, and federal, I don't know, all MPs. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. Um, yeah everyone asking them to, um, I guess, increase the um, the amount of refugees that we take in. Yeah, I think Rise Refugees, um, they have um, some material in which you could use to mm. um, write to your MP, just some starting points. Like, you can use the templates, but also make it personal about why, like, you know, you know and f- feel in your heart to, you know, accommodate mm. of, of you know refugees from such a horrible situation that we've personally been involved in yes i think sometimes if you just use copy and paste a template they tend to because they all read the same yeah i think they tend to i don't know if they end up in spam or something so like try to personalize mm. it but yes yeah. rise refugee is a refugee-led um mm. organization so follow them and they'll have yeah like evie said templates and things like that yeah. um well I felt like that was a really big news section. It's for one today. of those weeks. It's one of the. It's only. It's only been one day. Right? Yeah, it's a Monday. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we'll be back uh, right after this. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way. 
What can I say? You feel the hell. You change your way. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to go to a track now. Uh, this is by Christine and the Queens. Um, Christine the Queens, or just Chris, is a French singer-songwriter and record producer. Um, this is her song People I've Been Sad from her 2020 album La Vita Nuova.
So that was People I've Been Sad by Christine and the Queens. So last week I caught up with Dr. Jihen Kebsi, a lecturer in gender studies at Macquarie University. Her research areas include postcolonialism, transnational feminism, Arab feminism, refugee literature and world and comparative literature. Jihen met with me to discuss the French government's surveillance of university academics, the threat to academic autonomy, and the accusation of anyone teaching or researching um, racism and anti-racism, colonialism and Islamophobia um, of committing Islamo-leftism. And we also just talked about Islamophobia in French politics and everyday life. My interview with Dr. Kebsey was inspired by her article for Arena Online, um, Big Brother is Watching French Academia, which was published in uh, June 18 of this year. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Dr. Kebsey. To begin, could you please tell us the meaning of Islamo-gauchisme or Islamo-leftism and the origins of the term? Um, hi, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, So Islamo-leftism is a term used to refer to an alliance between Islamists and leftists in order to oppose uh, Western values. So many people think this alliance is imaginary and has never taken place, yet proponents of the the term use it to talk about what they consider the, uh, between quotation marks, red-green axis because the green color symbolizes Islam. Um, So the intensification of Islamophobia since 9-11 has led many Islamophobes to associate Islam with a so-called green scare or green threat. And um, proponents of the ideology and term Islamo-leftism refer to this uh, when they condemn this so-called red-green axis. Um, In fact, people like uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, uh, for instance, think that Islamo-leftism is a real danger. Uh, Henri Lévy described Islamo-leftism as a grand new alliance between the Reds and New Browns and as a sort of um, an anti-American religion. So Lévy considered Islamo-leftism an attempt to bring down Western civilization. The term was used for the first time in France by Pierre-André Taguieff in um, 2002. Taguieff believes in French exceptionalism and thinks that the anti-racist, anti-fascist and anti-imperialist stance of the left um, is an attempt to make France doubt its historical mission. In his um, his uh, 2002 book, uh, The New Judeophobia, Thagiev uses the term to talk about an alliance between leftist and Islamist activists. And then in the 2010s, the term was claimed by the far right in France, and they used it as a derogatory accusation to discredit their opponents. So the far right in France has used this pejorative term for a long time in order to attack the left, 
For example, the far-right politician Marine Le Pen used it against her opponents. She used this term as a political weapon in order to accuse the left of weakening the French state. How? By criticizing France and by aligning with Muslims, according to her, of course. And recently, the French Minister of Higher Education, Frédéric Vidal, announced that the state would investigate how far Islamo-Gauchism um, Islamo or Islamo-Leftism has penetrated French universities. Um, so Vidal said in the French Parliament that an assessment of all the research that takes place in um, French universities would, um, would happen, would be organized in order to find out whether or not it has veered into Islamo-Gauchism. Yeah, so based on what Frédéric Vidal has, has said, how will this affect subjects and courses that explore and critique France's history of colonialism and imperialism, as well as the state's ongoing systemic violence against black and Muslim communities? According to Vidal and her supporters, there is a need to, dis a need to distinguish uh, academic research from activism and opinion. Um, yet, as I said, opponents of the term see the whole thing as a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. So in terms of which fields are targeted by this accusation, um, the, the subjects are various and the fields are various. They include post-colonial studies and any fields where um, critical race theory and intersectionality are taught. So even gender inclusive teaching and research have become elements of Islamo-leftism and many uh, researchers have criticized this. So basically proponents of the term Islamo-leftism consider these um, so here I'm talking, I'm referring to uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. Mm -hmm. They consider them as unwanted imports from the U.S. Uh, for example, 253 intellectuals, including Tagiev, um, signed a letter in which uh, we read that, and actually I included the quote, um, I would love to read it for you. We sure. read that, um, and, and indigenous racialist and between quotation marks decolonial ideologies taken from North American campuses feed a hatred of whites and of France. And here I would like to explain that France's political establishment tends to deny the existence of systemic racism. Mm. France has a history of police violence against uh, people of color. And for this reason, the anti-racism um, protests, which were triggered by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the American police, resonated widely in France. Mm. However, Instead of addressing the deeply rooted problem of racism in France, politicians blamed the problem on leftist forces in French universities and mainly on academics between quotation marks, excessive focus on racism, intersectional and structural discrimination. A good illustration of this is what happened in June 2020 when Macron blamed the youth activism against police violence and racism at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests on the academic world. So Macron said that the academic world has its share of blame because it, it has encouraged 
the ethnicization of social issues. So as you can see here, instead of trying to face and solve France's real structural problems and its marginalization of immigrants, including North and Sub-Saharan Africans, both Muslims and non-Muslims, politicians tried to condemn universities' focus on racism and inequality. They considered this focus an ideological and um, intellectual excess that has made the younger generation of students criticize French society and uh, history. Dr. Kepsi, how have academics responded to this accusation of Islamo-leftism? Many academics emphasize that French academia is an unlikely terrain for alleged Islamist radicalization. Uh, for example, Jean-Yves Tranchet, who is a political science professor at uh, l'Université Libre in Brussels, stressed that the term does not distinguish between Islam, which is a religion, and Islamism, which is a political uh, movement. Tranchet explained that uh, the term Islamo-leftism has become a way to create easy scapegoats while distracting from criticism of the right. Mm -hmm. and also explain that the threat of Islamism um, is real in France. There is no denying that this threat is there. However, this threat is not leftist at all because Mm -hmm. the Islamist ideology actually has many intersections with how the conservatives of the far right see things. Um, I would like also to refer to Nasira Genif, who is a sociologist in Paris uh, according to her, the term Islamo-leftism is a wrong accusation since this coalition between leftists and Islamists has never taken place. Mm. Um, and many other um, academics criticize this attempt to delegitimize the positions and the research of certain intellectuals by misrepresenting them to the public as Islamo-leftists and as being in coalition with extremist Islamists and as being supporters of terrorism. So Genif also criticizes the amplification of this so-called threat, which does not exist. Why is her view important? Because um, she stresses the non-existence of any new Islamo-leftist threat to the research conducted in French universities. Why? Since nothing has changed in the ways in which research Um, has been conducted, and since research output has always been produced through a blind peer-reviewed process, and also since the journals in which researchers publish are recognized and authorized by official research bodies. So nothing has changed. This Mm. is how research has always been conducted. Um, That's why, as I said, many academics um, have said that the whole thing is a fantasy term. Um, It's a fantasy term that aims at um, creating panic. Uh, I would like also to mention the the response of the sociologist Amel Boubaker, because um, she uh, stressed the inaccuracy of the accusation by pointing out that Muslims have been excluded from actively participating in politics in the country, despite the Islamo-leftism allegation. Mm. So Boubaker argued that the left uses Muslim only to compete against the right on social issues. Um, So um, many academics spoke against the attempt to delegitimize the work of researchers who seek to point out the dysfunctions of our uh, society. That was the first part 
of a discussion I had with Dr. Jihen Kebsi on French universities being closely monitored by the government. Before we play you the second half of the interview, um, we're going to play a song by Tunisian hip-hop artist Medusa TN, uh, and she was actually recommended by Dr. Kebsi herself. This is her 2021 track, Marabouté. Je pense à toi quand j'ouvre les yeux Je pense à toi seul dans mon pieu Je pense à toi quand je suis sous l'eau Je pense à toi même dans le métro T'es tellement fort, tu me fais de l'effet Je sais c'est pas ce que tu m'as fait Je sais que c'est trop tard, je pense à des pouvoirs J'essaie de t'oublier mais je n'y arrive pas Tu m'attèges un sort, car y'a pas plus fort Je sens ta présence même quand tu n'es pas là Je suis sûre que je suis marabotée listening to 3CR 
Um, and that was Marabouté by Tunisian artist Medusa TN. Before the song, we were listening to Dr. Jihen Kebsi talk us through the various reactions of academics in response to the French government accusing them of being Islamo-leftists. In this final part of the interview, Dr. Kebsi talks us through her article for Arena Online, um, The State of Islamophobia in France, as well as President Macron's dog whistling in an attempt to win back followers. A few months ago, Dr. Kebsi, you wrote an article called Big Brother is Watching French Academia for Arena Online. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Um, yes, well, my choice of Big Brother uh, aims at criticizing this surveillance uh, regime and this uh, control and punish approach, which um, which creates an Orwellian educational system where Big Brother monitors academics and robs them of their autonomy. Uh, so according to Vidal, a good academic is a disciplined teacher who separates their teaching and research from what she calls their opinion or activism. Um, and this um, position is problematic, um, especially because France uh, prides itself on the values of freedom and liberty. Uh, and these values um, are against the dictatorial surveillance which we see because it kills academic freedom and stifles the researcher's autonomy. So in my view, the attempt to criminalize the research of the educators who introduce students to the atrocities of racism, xenophobia, colonialism, and Islamophobia leads to a thought police. And this thought police will only allow the research that approves um, the government's agenda. Mm. Now, Islamophobia in academia and the university space is not an isolated occurrence of anti-Muslim sentiment in France. What else has been happening in the country? Um, yes, you are right. So, um, in fact, the Macron government has um, multiplied its initiatives to crack down on Islamism, especially through the anti-separatism separatism bill, um, so Macron announced this anti-separatism bill in October 2020, um, and the French parliament has just passed the bill in late July. However, many people argue that Macron's tactics have become a crackdown on Islam as a religion, not on Islamism as a political movement, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, Macron's actions are fostering hostility against the country's Muslim population. So many uh, French Muslims say that the anti-separatism bill targets them and seeks to limit their religious uh, freedom. Uh, for instance, the bill expands governmental power to dissolve organizations. Uh, the bill um, obliges the organizations that apply for public funding to sign a Republican contract and abide by its conditions, which aim to promote the ideology of the state. Uh, so the bill aims to strengthen um, laïcité, uh, which means secularism in French. Uh, the bill also restricts homeschooling as it makes it based on a strict authorization regime and not on parents' free choice anymore. Mm -hmm. And many Muslims uh, say that this new framework forces Muslim parents to send their children to the public secular educational system, uh, where religious symbols like the veil are not um, accepted. Um, so obviously the bill does not mention Islam by name, mm. as this will lead to an accusation of Islamophobia. 
However, the fact that Macron stressed the need to tackle what he considered uh, Islamist separatism when he announced this between quotation marks reform is a strong indicator that his bill targets um, Muslim, Muslims. And here I would like to add that, um, that France, uh, France is home to Europe's largest Muslim community mm. and that the Muslims of France represent the largest minority uh, community in the country. With regard especially to the issue of the veil uh, and uh, women's ability to wear it or not to wear it, many women uh, have actually um, uh, highlighted their pride in, in wearing uh, the veil mm. and uh, they, um, the messages circa circulated widely on social media. I can, for instance, mention the hashtag hands off my hijab, mm. hands off my, uh, my uh, hijab and um, many uh, Muslim young women tried to question uh, the, what they considered a double standard in um, French legislation. Why? Because the age of consent to have sex in France is 15 uh, years old, whereas the newly imposed uh, age of consent to wear the veil in France is 18 years old. So, as I said, this um, comparison was highlighted um, on social media, and many uh, young women stressed uh, the fact that they wear uh, their veils by choice mm. uh, and that they see um, their veils as a form of empowerment. Uh, the issue here actually, especially when it comes to the veil, is that the French government forgets that um, obliging women to unveil is as oppressive as obliging them to wear the veil mm. because both forms, sexist, misogynist forms of policing women's bodies. There are also many Muslim non-veiled women and feminists who try to point that uh, to point this uh, problem out because this should not be the concern of the state and this again is a, a form of a colonization of Muslim women's bodies. You mentioned earlier that Marine Le Pen, the far-right politician, has used the term Islamo-gauchisme or Islamo-leftism in the past to attack her opponents. How has President Macron weaponized the term to garner more votes ahead of the upcoming election? Yeah, you're right. The term has been used for a long time by the far right, yet recently the government of Macron made a series of calculated political moves in order to appeal to far right voters by using and adopting this controversial uh, term. Um, for instance, there are multiple examples that demonstrate this. For example, the Minister of Education, uh, Jean-Michel Blanquer, went as far as calling teaching and researching on certain topics an intellectual complicity in terrorism. Mm. And he warned against the impact of Islamo-leftism on society. Um, the, the same minister actually accused um, a, a number of professors of um, Islamo-leftism and of intellectual radicalism. Uh, another illustration of the Macron government's um, calculated political moves can also be seen in the position of the Minister of the Interior, Interior uh, Gérald Darmanin, uh, who accused um, the anti-Islam far-right leader Marine Le Pen of being um, soft on Islam. Mm. Um, 
and then uh, Minister also, also Minister of National Education, Jean-Michel Blanquer, insisted that there is something ideological at work in academia and that it must be made uh, explicit. Um, he also um, said um, uh, on a French radio channel that social studies uh, academic research is regressive mm. and at odds with the values of the um, Enlightenment. So I just would like to explain that the 2018 Gilets Jaunes uh, protest, the Yellow Vest protest movement, led to a huge decrease in Macron's popularity. And on top of this, Macron has failed in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Uh, the way his government handled the COVID crisis dissatisfied many French citizens and made many voters turn against him. And the failure of the Macron government and voters' dissatisfaction with um, its policies have increased the popularity of the far right. Now, the next presidential era elections are scheduled for April 2022. Therefore, in recent, recent months, Macron has been determined to prove that his government is cracking down on Islamist extremism. And as a result, in, in their attempt to prevent a defeat, in the next elections, Macron and his ministers have been trying to adopt parts of the discourse and terminology of the far right. Mm. So this is why many people are convinced that the Islamo-leftism controversy has less to do with academia or Muslims and more with Macron's electoral, uh, uh, sorry, electoral strategy. Um, yet the problem is that this electoral strategy has made what was once a term heard only among the far right in France gain unprecedented visibility and reach um, the, the mainstream. This deliberate mainstreaming of this populist far-right notion has allowed French politicians to blame leftist forces in universities for the critical views which many French students have of French uh, societies. Well, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR today, Dr. Kebsi. We really look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to uh, talk to you and to discuss this issue with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, so that was Dr. Jihen Kebsi on Islamo-leftism and the threat to academic autonomy, as well as uh, President Macron's Islamophobic laws that continue to target France's Muslim communities, and especially Muslim women. If you'd like to read Dr. Kebsi's article, Big Brother is Watching French Academia, uh, you will find the link in our show notes later this morning. Go to 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Breakfast. Wala monole Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards 
Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Radio. Um, It's nearly 8 o'clock. Before our next interview, we're going to play a song called Friendzone. And uh, this is the latest single from Nigerian-born singer, songwriter and rapper Pricey. I'm sure that you know everything seems better when she is around yet the world seems clearer oh my oh my yeah I'm sure that it shows you that real real nigga you the only one she go ever let in her you the only one she go ever let see her oh but you say why can't we be friends why can't we just be so smooth she gonna make you fall in love if you don't make a move right now right now right now yeah right now 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 so what you gonna do you a heartbreaker but she's got her games too so what you gonna do right now right now yeah right now 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 Selective got hot strings in my bowl for breakfast. Like, geez, when she gonna leave? Fucking y'all say, like, what we gonna be, baby, baby? I don't know what you see in me. Girl, my eyes are closed. Show that acting colder than the eye. Sicko with that thigh exposed on the northern pole. She me shake, shake, run away when she stay, stay. Didn't say hey, now she's spinning like a bait blade. I ain't fake face, no type. Like I'm sweet lay with a day, day out like lady in a straight, straight. I said, what you, what you wanna do today, my brother? See a movie, maybe catch a game, my brother. She said, stop addressing me this way. Can't you say I'm your babe? But I say, but I say. But you say, why can't we? It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. 
a poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR. You are on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, and we just heard a track by Pricey. So next up, we have an interview with artist um, Katie Svetkidis. She is a NAM-based multidisciplinary artist um, with work spanning across visual art and live performances. And uh, Katie is, um, at the moment, a feminist emissary at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre and is creating a women's COVID-19 time capsule. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hello. Um, so I was having a read of your bio online and you've done work across so many different mediums of art, including theater, um, visual art, and your, the themes you mainly explore seem to be around intersectional feminism and the role that women play in the public. Can you tell us a bit about these themes in your art? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm quite interested in, um, I guess, like yeah, the role of women in public life or um, how women are like given space to speak in public. So, um, And that is kind of the main drive for manifesting my work, I guess, in a lot of different contexts. So... Um, probably one of the biggest projects I had done up until the Time Capsule Project was a project I did in 2018 where I um, ran for mayor in the city of Melbourne and I participated in the campaign and also ran, um, I guess, like my own sort of artistic interventions into the like electoral process. And um, a lot of the time, like, I will like engage in something within the public to then sort of create a series of artworks out of that. Yeah, that sounds um, really unique and different to a lot of art that I've personally been involved in. Um, how did your idea for the time capsule come about? Uh, yeah, so I um, actually, so the beginning of 2020, I um, was uh, offered to do a project with the Queen Victoria Women's Centre um, that was actually not about COVID at all, but uh, very like about a week after um, I was offered that project, we went into lockdown. So um, I guess over the course of like the start of last year, I sort of sort of reimagining like what what this project could be and how the women's centre I guess could like serve the women of Victoria. Um, originally, the the women's centre was actually a, a hospital. It was like the first hospital for women that was completely staffed by women in Victoria. So I was sort of interested in, like, what could the the centre provide as, like, a space for women in this sort of new health crisis that we we're going through. And, um, yeah, I guess the project sort of has evolved and changed many times over the last 18 months. And um, I, yeah, I decided that I just wanted to sort of talk to women across the state um, 
and find out sort of what their experiences were because I felt like in the media, what like we were just hearing the same story over and over again. And actually, I felt like there was lots of different things happening that were getting missed. So that was sort of the impetus for the project. And um, I started creating an archive of testimonies of people I'd spoken to. And, um, and yeah, funnily enough, I guess I kept starting to talk about the archive as a time capsule. And then I decided that I was like, well, actually, let's actually like build a physical time capsule. And so, um, yeah, we're currently in the process of building the object that will be in the shape of uh, a COVID spike. And inside it, it's going to contain the primary object that it will contain will be this book that will contain like the testimonies of people that I've spoken to. And um, and then it will be buried at the Women's Centre, hopefully in um, mid-October, uh, out the front. And we're hoping that it'll be buried for... Um, well, we buried for like one week for every person that has um, died from COVID in Australia. So at the moment, I think it's looking at about 18 years. But wow. I mean, yeah, so it's sort of tricky to tell because obviously like particularly in Sydney, what's happening at the moment, it's like constantly sort of going up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so have there been any sort of emerging themes that um, the women that you interviewed had in common? Yeah, I mean, I think lots of people speak about, um, you know, I guess the burden of um, caring and, well, burden for women is quite the right word, but I guess I think the expectation of women to take up more of the domestic labour or more of the caring roles or more of the homeschooling of their children um, is something that, you know, it's sort of come across again and again and again and that people, um, you know, kind of, I think, felt like, feel a bit helpless in the face of, like, I guess, capitalist structures of the patriarchy that, you know, even the best laid intentions, like, couldn't seem to get around, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and I guess the other thing that's been interesting about the project is, like, actually there are some common themes, but then there are also things that are, like, completely contradictory. So, like... To some people, they felt like completely supported by the government and completely, you know, sort of held within like systems of NDIS and telehealth. And then for other people, they felt like completely abandoned and that they didn't have access to those resources that they needed. And I guess like the project is about like holding that kind of messy, complicated, contradictory experiences of people. Yeah, and I mean, that's so true, Um, you know, given your background or your previous life experiences or what you've been through before this pandemic would really inform how you view those support systems and how you um, get through this current time as well. Yeah, and I think, like, it's it's sort of interesting, like, even... I spoke to a few people that work in the health sector and, yeah, some people found that experience, like, as one person I spoke to was talking about how they... Um, they found like the hierarchy of the health sector had really broken down and that everybody was in it together. And then there were other people I spoke to that felt like, you know, the health sector was like a complete mess and they were really burnt out. So, yeah, I guess, um, like, uh, yeah, a big part of the project is like actually just showing that like everybody's having a very different experience and that, um, you know, it's a funny thing about making a time capsule and, and like I've been thinking a lot about like, how do I make sure that the project doesn't just speak for like one person's voice or 
claim to speak for like all women because I guess like everybody's having a very personal experience. But the other thing I think about the work that's been quite interesting is like giving people a moment to actually stop and reflect time. And I guess I've been interviewing people since sort of like August last year until now, so for 12 months. Um, everybody's, for the most part at least, I think up until very recently, still had something kind of positive to say about the experience or something that they had learned about this period, mm. or um, which, you know, I don't think is something that we're necessarily hearing a lot outside that context. So I, I think that actually has been quite interesting. Yeah, so you would have interviewed people across the different lockdowns, is that right? Yeah, so the first interview in the book is um, is from the ver- is like from about the middle of the first lockdown, and um, the last interview was done just before we went into this current lockdown. So um, there's sort of yeah interviews from different lockdowns, also from like periods of like not being in lockdown, and it's sort of interesting to see how people like chart people's like. I guess, like, understanding of, of the pandemic and also their sort of, like, or chart this sort of building up of fatigue, I think is something that I've really noticed in the last few months. Um, I think even, like, my own expectations around the pandemic, I was just thinking it yesterday, actually, like, it's so funny even looking back to sort of conversations I was having in December where I think I just was like, oh, yeah, and it's, like, all behind us now and this is just going to be, like, some, you know, crazy story that we're just going to talk about in the future. And I think, like, now, like, having this realisation that it's, like, actually maybe this is something that's going to be, like, ongoing is been a real shift for me, I think, in thinking about the project and also in the way I'm talking to people. Yeah. And um, it would have also, as an artist, um, making this project in the pandemic, in lockdown, would also have been an interesting experience, I imagine, because in a way you're also sort of holding some of these stories and um, maybe there's a solidarity in it, maybe there's more anxiety in it. Like, what's that been like for you? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a mix. Like, I think it definitely helped me reflect on, like, how I was managing the pandemic or, like, my own privilege within the pandemic, my own, like, yeah, the fact that I was sort of able to work from home and that I was able to just be at home and I guess it put my own experience in a bit of a bigger perspective. Um, and I think I just, like, I think the thing that I definitely felt like was, you know, there were times where, like, yeah, I was, like, talking to a lot of people that were in situations that were a lot more difficult than my own and, and that at times was really upsetting. But I think, yeah, I just found ways to definitely, like, manage like how many people I would talk to in a day. I think there was like one week where I spoke to like eight people in a week and then at the end of it, I was just like a bit of a mess and I was like, okay, like I just can't do that anymore. Like, so like, yeah, finding ways, I guess, within the project. And I guess I've been lucky enough that the Women's Centre have sort of really let me like work on the project for a really extended period of time, which is like quite unusual. Normally I feel like so as artists, like, we want to just like get the project done, finish it and like wrap it up in a really short period of time. But to be able to work on something for basically two years is like, I think it's given me the scope to really do it in a way that feels manageable. And I also, I guess, like captures like our ongoing experience of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a really important project uh, to exist out in the world. Uh, it's documenting 
important experiences of women, particularly in a global pandemic. Um, and yeah, I'm keen to see uh, what the end result will be. And hopefully it won't be buried for too long. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, we've got. I'm sort of figuring that out at the moment because I'm like, okay, it's like not over. <laughs> so, like, what? Where? Yeah, what does that mean in terms of the burial date and time? But I think, like, I, like so it's, it's scheduled to be buried on the 16th of October. So I think that will be the date that we'll take it from. Amazing. Well, that's all we have time for today, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, if anybody is interested in Katie's work, we will link her website in our show notes and we will also link the Queen Vic Women's Centre website for more information on this project. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks so much. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Please Radio 855 on your AM dial. Voice of the people's appeal. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic Radio 855 on your AM dial. Voice of the people's appeal. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're tuned into Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go to a track now. I watched the movie Queen and Slim this week, which if you haven't seen it, is a beautiful... I really want to watch that. Yeah, it's really, really good. I cried a lot, so um, maybe don't watch it in a time that you feel really vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling fragile right now. <laughs> yeah, I was just like getting teary-eyed listening to that vaccine announcement, just going, oh God. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's a really incredible movie, um, really well written and directed, and the casting is um, really amazing and just beautiful and i'm going to play a song from the soundtrack called soul sister by bilal and Raphael sadiq mm-hmm. 
playing underneath there is the song Soul Sister by Bilal and Raphael Sadiq. Uh, next up, we're going to listen to Jacob and Fung from Monday Breakfast speaking with Dylan from Vixen Collective about the decriminalization of sex work in Victoria. And up next, we've got an interview with the Vixen Collective. As we know, last week, the Victorian government announced that it would be decriminalising sex work, removing offences and criminal penalties for consensual sex work. And there were also announcements to regulate sex work through existing government agencies, update and modernise planning and public health systems to support a decriminalised system. Uh, Now, decriminalisation is something that sex workers have been asking for for decades now. But what does it actually mean? So joining us now from the Vixen Collective, which is Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation, is Dylan O'Hara. Good morning, Dylan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. 
Can you give us a bit of an overview of the legal conditions that sex workers currently operate under? Yeah, so Victoria, the current framework is called licensing. And so what that means is that you have basically a two-tiered sex industry. That's what that system creates. It's one of the, well, it's, it's the reason that it's a huge failure. So you have a small, probably small proportion of, of sex workers where we're able to uh, to comply with these really onerous requirements. Um, but even um, even people who are able to comply with the laws are still really struggling under them because they're extremely onerous um, and discriminatory. And then if you can't comply with those, for, for many reasons, you're forced to work in a way that's criminalised. Right. So it really divides our community. Um, thank you for that. So what kind of risks do sex workers face um, having to work within this two-tier system and, and navigate navigate this? Sure. So, I mean, a really key part of it is that the, you know, the, the main regulators of the sex industry in Victoria are the police. So um, because we don't have decriminalisation, it means that sex workers are singled out in a way that, you know, really nobody else is. Um, and obviously coming into contact with police like that is... Um, you know, it's, it's hugely problematic, especially for a community where, um, you know, many of us are marginalised in other ways. So often criminalisation is, is unfortunately the most impactful on people who are already um, likely to be exposed to, um, you know, to, to police harassment or to state violence. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess more broadly, um, the police being regulators of the industry, um, you know, it makes it extremely challenging for people who um, do wish to access the justice system um, because, of course, there's a fear of self-incrimination um, and also just the overwhelming stigma and discrimination. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, honestly, I could, you know, I could, I could probably go on for, for quite some time about the, about the problems with the licensing system because they're compre- yeah, it's, it's really a comprehensive failure. It just doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so many risks involved. And as you said, how do you seek justice when the police are the ones who are sort of overlooking the industry? So understandably, this has led to to many calls um, for it to to be decriminalised. And there was a good announcement last week that the Vic government um, is going to do that. Can you tell us a bit, what does it actually mean for sex work to be decriminalised? Yeah, so obviously Friday's announcement was a, you know, it was a really significant, I guess, commitment from the Andrews government to, you know, to make good on, um, you know, I, I guess um, what, what we hoped would happen when the review was announced in 2019. And I guess as for what decriminalisation is, you know, full and genuine decriminalisation of sex work, removes sex work-specific criminal and licensing laws and police powers for all sex workers, including sex workers from marginalised groups, so it's really a whole-of-government approach to regulating the sex industry. I think there's a conception that there's no regulation involved in decriminalisation, but that's not the case. Um, it's, it's really just about um, recognising sex workers' work and, um, yeah, being regulated under, under standard existing laws. It's actually pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, and so under these new laws, street-based sex work will no longer be criminalised. Will this make it safer for sex workers? Yeah, I think so. You know, decriminalising sex work is absolutely beneficial to our safety um, because at the moment um, sex workers are really being forced to make decisions that are based on the requirements of the licensing system rather than our health and safety needs. And so decriminalisation, it just increases choice and control 
over how we work, where we work, with whom we work. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, for, you know, from our perspective, the next, um, I guess, the coming weeks and months are going to be about making sure that those benefits of decriminalisation are extended to all sex workers in Victoria. Because, you know, anything less than that wouldn't be genuine decriminalisation. So that's going to be our focus. Of course. And, and they've mentioned that there will be a review of some of the controls and restrictions on advertising sex work services. What do you think this will mean for sex workers? Uh, advertising specifically? Yeah, so, I mean, it really impacts your ability to, I guess, negotiate clearly, to, to advertise your services clearly. Um, and, uh, sorry, my uh, cat has just knocked over a full <laughs> pot of coffee. That's great. Oh, no. Uh, COVID, COVID life from home. Sorry about that. Um, where were we? Advertising. Yeah, look, the advertising controls at the moment are, you know, they are hugely detrimental. They impact safety and they're also just really discriminatory. Um, again, you know, sex workers work. We need to be able to advertise what we're doing. It's a pretty basic, um, it's really a pretty basic ask, actually. Um, you mentioned before that um, under the current um, licensing, uh, sex workers, um, it's, it's really difficult for sex workers to seek justice. Um, under the new decriminalisation uh, laws, how will this affect the way that sex workers report crime or harassment as well as exploitative workplaces? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, if you look to jurisdictions that have decriminalised or have, have, you know, gotten close to decriminalisation, people do report a much, you know, an increased ability to um, to report to police or to other, you know, to other um, mechanisms like other, um, you know, here it would be WorkSafe. Um, I think... I think the thing to bear in mind is that, you know, um, different people are going to make different decisions around that. Going to the police still might not be accessible for some people for the reasons that it's not accessible, you know, for lots of people um, that go beyond sex work. But I think that what decriminalisation does is it removes one of those, you know, it removes a massive barrier uh, for many sex workers. Um, And... You know, I I guess stigmatising attitudes don't go away overnight, but it creates a space where those can be unpacked as well, which is obviously really crucial to not just accessing, I guess, um, justice in in the most traditional sense, but also to accessing um, support services, um, you know, including those um, run by sex workers, but also like mainstream family violence services. Some of those can be very difficult for sex workers to access at the moment in Victoria, you know, due to some of the kind of... um, yeah, frankly, the stigma that people um, face when they access those services as workers. So, you know, decriminalisation is not a magic um, bullet, but it is an essential first step, I guess, to, um, yeah, to making those things easier and to kind of broader change in terms of people's attitudes. Mm, definitely. And um, you mentioned before accessing support services. Um, do you know if many sex workers were able to access COVID supplements? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were not. Um, You know, last year some people were able to access JobKeeper, but that was probably a very small number of people. Um, And, you know, of course, um, of course, currently um, those kinds of federal supports obviously aren't available anyway. Mm. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, there are lots of reasons why sex workers can't always access um, those kinds of financial supports. Sometimes we don't have the appropriate financial records Um, Sometimes it might require us to out ourselves to the state and that can be really unsafe for lots of reasons. Um, 
Yeah, so, and, you know, and there are also sex workers who may just not be eligible for any of those things at all, you know, due to their visa status or things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a really, really challenging time for sex workers. Um, obviously, it hasn't been an easy time for anybody. Um, but, you, you know, um, we, we don't get holiday pay. We don't get sick pay. We're not able to earn. We're just not earning. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's been a really challenging time which has, yeah, definitely placed a lot of people in, in financial need. Yeah, so um, speaking of that, how can we continue to support sex workers during this time of COVID? Yeah, so um, a great way to do that is to um, donate if you're able to or otherwise um, just share in your networks the Scarlet Alliance Emergency Relief Fund for sex workers. Um, so that's a fundraiser that Scarlet Alliance, um, along with its um, state and territory member organisations, including Vixen, has been running um, since or oh, April 2020. Had a bit of a, a bit of a break there in the middle, um, and it, it's been reopened again now. Um, and yeah, it's it's a really large mutual aid project um, where where every week um, we distribute funds to sex workers in need. Um, so yeah, do, donating to that um, or sharing it in your networks if you're not able to donate is a is a great way to support workers. Um, it's, it all goes straight to sex workers in, in need of need of support. For sure. And Dylan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Oh no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cool. So that was. Dylan O'Hara um, from the Vixen Collective. And if you want to donate to that emergency support fund mentioned before, you can visit chuffed.org slash project slash sex dash worker dash support. All right. So that was uh, Fung and Jacob from Monday Breakfast speaking with... Um, Dylan from Vixen Collective about the decriminalization of sex work in Victoria. And that brings us to the end of our show. Um, we had a pretty big show today. Yeah, we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had the pleasure of hearing Fung's conversation with Dr. Jaheen Kebsi on Islamo leftism in France, which was a great interview. So if you missed that, I'd highly recommend going back and listening. Absolutely. And um, then we had in, an interview with artist Katie's, uh, Svetkidis, who is creating a time capsule of COVID-19 experiences as experienced by women. And just then you heard Jacob and Fung speaking to Dylan from Vixen Collective about the decriminalization of sex work in Victoria. Yeah. So I hope everybody has... Um, as good a week as is possible in our current lockdown conditions. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's yeah, be good. Walk down to the arrow <laughs> and go see the seal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If it's within your five kilometre radius. Follow Wally the Lamb. Yeah. Follow um, the Yarra Seal. Yeah, get some good things in your life today. Yeah. Um, and stay tuned to breakfast shows all through this week, and we will see you next week.